So can we just Thank you for tuning in to Adversity University and welcome to class. Hey everyone, this is Sean and just had a great start to my morning. Had a talk with Garrett and Topher Scott, who are both on the East Coast. So had to set the alarm for 6 a.m., which wasn't awesome, but <laughs> getting through it now, definitely worth the time. And Topher is he's been known to go out and help college teams. He actually spoke to both Garrett and my college team. Um, in the last couple of years. So I knew that he would have a ton of great insight and a lot of things written down here, but um, they're not setbacks, they're setups. Nothing great or of value came without time. Meeting away from the meeting, a lot of great topics that we'll get into and discuss more. Garrett, what did you think about Topher? Yeah, I loved it. And as you said, a great start to the morning, got a a real interview high, if you if you want to call it that. Um, but I just love the topics that we talk about. Um, you know, obviously he has great insight being a player, going to a coach, now finding his own niche and staying within the hockey community and uh, building cultures and building teams and finding things that work and make teams uh, be successful. And as you've seen firsthand, he does just that. And it was cool to kind of get an insider's perspective on what makes coaches tick, what makes players tick, and how to really bring them together and, uh, you know, form a successful team or uh, a successful corporation or organization or whatever you'd like to call it. Something so great that I really enjoyed about Topher was his perspective. So it didn't matter whether we were talking about the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan or, you know, his personal story of his hockey career. There was always, you know, a takeaway. There was something that, you know, they do or he did that, now looking back on it, he's learned from and he tries to pass that knowledge along. And that's really the niche he's in now. And like you said, being a player, being a coach, now his goal is to help players, coaches and parents really, you know, achieve at their game and not make the same mistakes that he's seen other teams make. I'm really excited for this one and really hoping that you guys enjoy it too. Let's kick it on over to Topher Scott. Monument Hockey Academy provides the highest level of developmental training available today. With intense focus on individual skills including skating, stick handling, shooting, game awareness, and competition, MHA offers players the opportunity to take advantage of up to 15 hours of on and off ice time per week to continue their personal development outside of team-specific training. Our coaches bring Tier 1, college, and pro experience and are trained in the latest and most cutting-edge programming in the world. Our academic support staff provides guidance and coaching with a variety of educational platforms, including including online, in-person, and hybrid models, while ensuring students' NCAA eligibility from middle school through graduation. At MHA, our goal is to provide an opportunity for every player to reach his or her maximum potential, both on and off the ice. For more information or to schedule a visit, go to monumenthockey.com. Today's guest had a fantastic hockey career. He accumulated 107 points in 137 college games, he was a two-year captain and won a conference championship at Cornell, as well as a professional championship in the CHL. Next, he went on to coach Division I hockey for six years. I've learned firsthand what a successful team builder he has become. He is currently the director of the Syracuse Nationals, a youth organization, and a large part of the Hockey Think Tank, which has a website that includes blogs, team building, drills, webinars, and even their own podcast. 
Welcome to Adversity University, Topher Scott. Thanks for having me, guys. Excited. Let's do this. Yeah. Topher, how have you been and how's the quarantine affected your life? Uh, quarantine's been interesting, to say the least. Uh, I, have, uh, I have two young daughters, three and one years old. We've very much lucked out on that. Uh, we have childcare, so our neighbor watches our, our kids during the day. So from, from that standpoint, we haven't had to do any like, uh, you know, at home schooling or anything like that and, and watch them all day. So that's been a godsend for us. Um, hockey wise, it's been, uh, it's been interesting. You know, everybody's got different rules and regulations and protocols that you got to follow based on where you live. Uh, we live in New York, so it's been, you know, we haven't been able to play any games in our state. And so, uh, as a coach, you know, you try and balance, you know, the development of the players and the team, but also kind of their mental health and making it fun and and uh and making sure they're smiling and it's the best part of their day being able to get at the rink so uh covid's had certainly a different uh a different twist for everybody but for us it's uh just trying to manage just trying to get through it and come out on top afterwards yeah you mentioned it briefly but i think something that's getting overlooked during this whole pandemic is the mental health like you talked about shutting down gyms and rinks and all sorts of athletic complexes has really been tough on kids and you mentioned that you have a a three and a one-year-old, how have you tried to, you know, keep them entertained even though you have to keep them safe at the same time? Oh, it's tough. It really is. I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit more nervous now that the weather is turning and getting a little colder because before we just get outside, you know, all the time and uh, go to the playground, go to the park, go for walks, all that kind of stuff. And now you're, you're at home a little bit more. So uh, just trying to keep them busy, trying to do some fun stuff and games and things like that. And uh, just trying to occupy their time. The one-year-old's pretty easy. She just kind of sits there and doesn't do much. Uh, but the three-year-old is full of energy. So, you know, trying to find some, some fun things for her to do can be challenging at times, but uh, it's, you know, it's the circumstances that we're in. So you just got to do the best that you can at what, with what you have and, and roll with the punches. Yeah, I'm sure you've had some early mornings with the three-year-olds and <laughs> I don't look forward to those days. I'll tell you that for sure. Um, but you mentioned that you're, you're currently in New York uh, and you grew up just outside of Chicago and Buffalo Grove. So are you a diehard Chicago guy, you know, about, or do you, uh, are you a big fan of the Bears, Bulls, White Sox, Blackhawks, or do you have different favorite teams? Uh, I am. It's funny. Hockey is my sport. And the only sport that I'm not a Chicago fan is hockey, which, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So like bears for sure, die hard, white Sox for sure, die hard bulls. You know, I grew up in the Jordan era. So that was, that was huge in Chicago. Um, but the, the Blackhawks when I was growing up were terrible. They were so bad and you know, they didn't put home games on TV because they, they couldn't fill the stand. So the owner was like, if you want to come see us, you got to come see us play wow. at the arena. And, and <laughs> it was just, it was bad. Right. So, uh, so I became like an adopted Detroit Red Wings fan. Um, Steve Eiserman was my idol and, and uh, they're kind of like the next, the next team closest and they were winning cups at the time. So they became kind of my adopted team. But then as the Blackhawks got a little bit better, it's hard not to root for them because they had, some, you know, Kane and Taves and Keith and all those guys are real fun to watch. But uh, a diehard Chicago guy for sure. I, I miss the Midwest. I miss it out there. But uh, New York's – live in central New York. It's got kind of a Midwest feel to it too. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty good out here for sure. Yeah, I think a lot of people actually fell in love with uh, the Chicago Bulls watching the, the last dance. 
just unbelievable to see all those guys character their story what a leader michael jordan was yeah did did you watch that and what did you think about it oh for sure i watched it Uh, i was you know glued to the tv the second it came on uh because like i said like those were some of my fondest childhood memories was watching the bulls and i remember all six of their i think i was six years old when they won their first one uh and so just michael jordan was larger than life just absolutely larger than life and i'd read some of his books i'd read all phil jackson's books um just kind of trying to get a sense as a coach what that was like um learning from him and and so yeah i was i was glued to every second of it and it was just very very cool to see all the backstories of all the players and and how they got to where they got to. And I mean, it, it's kind of relevant to your guys' podcast and what you're doing too, because pretty much all of the superstars on their team, it wasn't easy for them. <laughs> all, all of the superstars had some sort of ups and downs and some major downs in, in their journey to becoming the best in the world. And I think that's a huge part of the reason why they were so successful where they were is because they were able to handle some of the ups and downs that comes from being a high-level athlete. Yeah, I loved uh, I loved the last dance, and I think that's a great point that you bring up because in one of the episodes they talk about, um, you know how how you just mentioned they have so many superstars and they had to play to their strengths, but play more of a team game too. And I think especially in basketball, when you become such a high level player and you're at such an elite pace, all you want to do is shoot the ball or score. Um, but you have to learn to pass it. You have to learn to play the team game more. And not to mention, too, it's crazy to see how basketball has transitioned. Uh, you know, back then it was a little bit more uh, drive to the net, where now it's kind of more of a shooting game. So it's cool to watch how it's developed um, and, and see how superstars play in today's game versus uh, the game back then. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, was, it was poetry in motion watching the Bulls with their teamwork. It really was. And, and I think – um, you're seeing that too a little bit more, you know, even with the Spurs. Uh, I like to kind of study other sports and see what they're doing and, and the Warriors and, and just the selfless play and, and how much they emphasize that stuff. And um, it's, it's, it's interesting because basketball, I feel like, has become a league where it's very individual driven from like a marketing standpoint. Um, but then you like listen to the guys talk about the game and it's very much a team game. So it's a interesting kind of thing to look at, but yeah, the bulls, I mean, it was very cool to watch as you were growing up or as I was growing up with it. And then to hear those stories of teamwork and sacrifice and and everything that they did to win. It was, it was really cool to see. I think my favorite part was seeing how Michael Jordan continued to motivate himself, even though he knew he was the best player in the world. He had already won, you know, four, maybe five championships. I remember one of the last episodes, not to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but, uh they lose game one and one of his former players comes up to him and you see that he says good game mike and he didn't take that well like it drew it drove him through the rest of the series that he like disrespected him after beating him and then they come out and go yeah no that didn't actually happen like he made that up in his head to drive himself and i just it's awesome to see someone i'll never reach that level of athletics so it's awesome to see someone (laughs) who's that good still like finding ways to get it done it is it's like literally insane, isn't it? He would make up stories about certain players that he was going to be playing against just just to piss him off because that's what, <laughs> you know, that's what put him in the right mindset to to be great. It just it's, yeah, those stories that came out. I mean, you kind of knew that he was the most competitive maybe player ever in history of any sport. 
but just just getting into that mindset and hearing him and even like you know tearing up that one episode where he's talking about making sure that his teammates were competing in practice and if you don't want to have that mindset you don't belong here and hearing how emotional he got when he did that I mean it just kind of you, you sit there and you're like wow because it's a window into what it takes to really be great that competitive spirit and and that willingness to go out on a limb to to demand that from everybody else um because you need if you if you want to be great you can't just do it on your own you, you need other people pushing you and you need teammates that push you so uh yeah that that was that was i mean getting into his <laughs> psychology was was interesting probably scary for some people but very interesting for people who are interested about it sure we could talk about it all day long but one thing you just kind of brought up that i want to touch on is it was kind of refreshing for me as someone that would like to think of themselves as a leader that everyone really respected him, but a lot of people kind of thought that he was an asshole in the sense that he really pushed them to be the best that they could be. So he could be the best that he could be. And it's funny because we kind of, I wouldn't say it's our team mantra now. And um, I'm trying to think who used it. There's a team in uh, the NBA that used it, but it's called like Ubuntu or something like that. And the saying is, I can only be the best I can be when you are the best you can be. Basically saying that, you know, in a team format, everyone has to push each other to be the, to their ultimate best. And I think that that just kind of solidifies, you know, a team sport as a whole. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think it's uh, doc rivers is the guy that uses that. In yep, the, it uh, is. It is. Um, but yeah, you know, when I, with my teams, and in my youth teams as a as a coach now one of the first things that we talk about is i think for hockey players the worst thing that you could be called is selfish i think our sport our culture that is like the 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 last thing you would want to be labeled as is a selfish hockey player and so what we talk about as a team beforehand is is the most selfish thing that you can do as a teammate is to not bring it in practice because now you're not making your teammates better and to have that competitive drive and to, to get better, you have to be competed against at the, at the top of their abilities, you know? So um, it's, it's just a little bit of a, a you know, a, a good message to the team. Like, Hey, we don't want to be selfish here. And a lot of people think of selfish as like puck hog or, you know, take too long a shifts or things like that, which certainly is, is selfish, but from a consistent everyday basis, to be a selfless teammate, you have to make your teammates better. And how do you do that? You make your teammates better by pushing them and bringing the best of your ability every day in, in practice. Cause that's ultimately where you get better. I think that was one of the biggest things that you actually talked about when you came and spoke to my team at Robert Morris. Uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think we won like two games out of our last 10 and in a, a 36 college, 36 game college season, that's a big slope, right? So uh, you came in, talked to us, and it was huge. I wanted to ask how you kind of became a go-to guy in the industry of helping like struggling teams. It's it's such a niche that I never really thought of. And it seemed like uh, our coach, Derek Schooley, knew kind of right away that you were the guy to get to try and help us right the ship. Uh, to be honest with you, like I, uh, so I got my master's, uh, I was a graduate assistant coach at Miami of Ohio for a year before I went on to coach at Cornell and I got my master's in sports studies. And, and through that, um, I really, really got interested in what makes greatness. 
from an individual standpoint and a team standpoint. And then as you guys know, playing high level hockey, you get experiences, you play on a bunch of different teams and you kind of take mental notes of why this team succeeded, why this team didn't, what was going on in the locker room, what was going on in the ice and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so I just, it just became kind of like a passion of mine to try and figure that out. You know, what makes people, what makes teams great. And with that, um, becoming a college coach, you, you get even a bigger window into it because number one, from a recruiting standpoint, you get to meet all of these kids and meet all these families and not only watch them play on the ice and see how they're doing and progressing there, but also you get to meet them and what's their, their makeup like personally, what's their character and all that kind of stuff. What do people say about them? And you, you, again, you start taking those mental notes of the kids that end up kind of panning out and doing pretty good things in the sport and the ones that don't. And the teams that, uh, you know, end up doing good things and the teams that don't, you know, so um, it's something that I just became really passionate about learning and then just kind of through recruiting and through my connections, the college hockey world is very, very small. And it's, uh, it's almost like a fraternity in its, in its own, you know, as an assistant coach, you're on the road recruiting all the time and you're in rinks with other assistant coaches and other head coaches and you get to form all of these relationships and stuff. Um, you know, so through that, I, you know, got to know a ton of different people like Derek and, and like your guys' assistant coaches and things like that. And, and so um, just when I stopped coaching in college, I wasn't sure what I really wanted to do. And I actually did a few team building sessions for free for a couple colleges, you know, around the country, just from guys that I know say, hey, I'm, I'm looking to get into this. What do you think? Can I come and try this with your team? And lucky enough, people trusted me to say, hey, yeah, let's try it out. Let's see what you got. And I did, and, and it ended up going really well, and, and people really liked it and got good feedback and thought it was good for their teams. And um, so, yeah, just through just through, kind of through my curiosity and passion for what makes teams great, and then th just through the fraternity and brotherhood of, you know, college hockey coaching, um, getting the chance to go and work with teams like yours. I think that's a really interesting way to stay involved in the game because I think it, as anyone can attest to that is retired, I, I think for the most part, the hardest part is, you know, stepping away from the game because that's all that we've known for so long. Yeah. So, and you know, most people look at it as maybe scouting or coaching or doing this, but I think it's cool. As Sean mentioned, you found your own little niche and, you know, you were, you went through it as a player, you went through it as a coach. Now you found your own little role in your little niche, but how important is culture to a team, um, office, or even family? And how can people work on improving culture? Oh, man, culture is everything. I, I really think it's everything. And uh, for me, like, culture is a living, breathing thing that you have to work on every day. You know, it's, it's not something that you just kind of snap your fingers and you either have or you don't have it. Um, it's, it's literally something that you have to work on. And based upon... Um, the personal relationships and how you treat each other based upon what your standards and what your values are within your program and, and how you're held accountable to those values and those standards. I think recruiting is a big part to culture, making sure you get the right people, you know, in your locker room that, uh, um, uh, you know, that, that believe in and buy into whatever that team's values and standards and accountability structures are. So and it was interesting going around one of the, one of the, fascinating things that I found out just from traveling around. I've done team building with probably 20 to 25 teams now. And the, the, I think the most fascinating thing that, that I've learned in doing it, because it's a learning experience for me too, to get in and work with so many different teams is that there's no one blueprint to a great culture. 
you know, it's, it's, it's different in every place, you know, what, what's in Long Island and can work there could be different from what's at Robert Morris and works there, which can be different from Cornell or North Dakota or whatever teams, you know? So it was really interesting to go in and, and speak with different coaches and different teams about their cultures. And you can have a championship team on one end that does things a certain way. And then you can have a championship team on another that on another end that does things completely different. <laughs> so it was really interesting to see that authenticity and that identity. I think when you're talking about culture, those are things that need to be developed and are probably the most important things to, uh, to being successful as a, you know, a, a business, a family, a, a team, whatever. Yeah. When you came and talked to us, you showed us uh, the changes in records from teams before you worked with them and after, and it was an insane differential. Uh, but how do you go into a new locker room or a new team that you have never talked to before? And in the matter of, you know, a two hour session, how do you identify their problems? Uh, well, I first talked to the coaches beforehand. Uh, so I'll get a sense of kind of where they're at and, and what they think the issues are and, um, and then the second part of it is just asking a lot of questions, asking a ton of different questions to the players, because as, as you see, or as you saw from when I was in there, it wasn't just me giving a presentation. It was a lot of, um, you know, what do you guys think about this? What are some scenarios where this has happened? You know, what have some of the low points been in your guys' season and what, how did you guys try to get through that? What are your guys' personal relationships like? And, and it's different for every team. And that's part of, uh, part of the fun for me is trying to get in and, and, and hear your guys' stories and how you've gotten through things and how you treat each other. And, uh, you know, I think there are some universal things that are important for each team to be successful. But at the same time, uh, it, again, it goes back to that identity of who you are as a program and uh, just asking a lot of questions and, and almost letting the players lead the discussion rather than you know, me just kind of talking, I think that's been really valuable. And, and I've learned a lot from doing that as well. What was Correct nice for me, me is, wrong. oh, sorry, go ahead. You're good. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the teams you typically, typically go and speak to are teams that are probably not having great seasons. Correct. Uh, it's been all of the above, to be honest. I've, I've gone in and, and worked with some teams that, that haven't been doing so well. I've, I've worked with some teams that were doing well. Um, and again, a lot of teams have similar problems. Sometimes there's a different twist to them. Um, and even on teams, and that's one of the things that I respect about the coaches that bring me in when things are going well is because they're not satisfied. They, they think there's even another level that they can get to. And I think that's a hallmark of a great team is they're just, they're always wanting to get better, you know? So um, yeah, I've worked with both and, and uh, it's been really fun. Yeah, cool. Well, I mean, as, as Sean mentioned, his team had won two, uh, two out of the last 10. Uh, my redshirt year at Mercyhurst, we were a struggling team at the beginning and we brought in someone similar. So what advice do you have for a coach who is having a poor season? How can they motivate the team without losing the room and having players tune them out? Oh, that is a tough question. <laughs> you know, that's, that's one of the toughest things as a coach. And uh, it was interesting. Were you there the year that I came in and worked with Mercyhurst? I think I think I was, but I had just had bilateral hip surgery. It was my okay. retro year. Um, so I wasn't in on the meetings. I believe you came in like right after Christmas or something. Yep. I'm not sure that I was around then. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so I came in and worked with, with your team too. Um, you know, for sometimes there can be a disconnect between the coaches and the players. And, and that happens in sports. You know, as coaches, you can sit there and, and – 
for a culture. And one of the things we really talk about as, as you know, Sean is, is a lot of the culture is built away from the rink. You know, you guys are not just teammates for the three hours that you're with each other or four hours at the rink, you're teammates for 24 seven all the time. So your culture, when I talk about it being a living, breathing thing, the way that you treat each other, the way that you hang out with each other, the way that you talk to each other away from the rink, that is extremely, extremely important. So sometimes as coaches, we don't understand and we don't know some of the stuff and some of the underlying issues that are going on away from us because we can't see it. We're not there every day, right? Or I shouldn't say we're not there every day, but we're not around you guys all day, every day, like you guys are around each other as, as athletes. Um, so sometimes there can be a disconnect between the coaches and, and how they think things are going and the players and how they think things are going. And ultimately when the coaches and the players can get on the same page, that's, that's huge. And, and so some of the benefits, I think, of somebody coming in that's not a part of the program and being able to ask the questions and talk and, and get to know what's really going on is you can say, hey, to the players, um, you know, because sometimes in my talks with the players, I can give them a coach's point of view from having been a coach and saying, hey, like, this is what I've seen from what you guys are telling me and, and this and this and this wouldn't fly with me as a coach and let's talk about it, <laughs> you know? And the same thing, I can go to the coaches and say, hey, here are some of the things that I'm hearing from the players, you know, this, this, and this, this doesn't fly and we just got to communicate better. We just got to get a little bit more in sync and, and communicate a little bit better. So sometimes that can be the case. I think a lot of it honestly comes down to communication and whether it's coach to player or player to player. And the player to player communication, I think is the most important thing. Um, one of the things that I talk about when you know we go through some of this stuff with, with the guys is that I call it the meeting away from the meeting. And that's not my term, I've heard that used by, by other people, but you know, it's away from the rink. And what are those conversations like? Because the biggest thing that can sink a team um, is negativity towards each other away from the rink when you're sitting around and you're having dinner or you're doing homework or you're playing video games. And, you know, uh, when you're talking about how oh, the coach should be doing this or that, or this guy shouldn't be in, in this role and I should be here. And like that sinks a team that abs and I'm sure you guys have been a part of teams like that, where that, that kind of negativity, it's so contagious and it sucks. It just sucks to be uh, around people like that. Right. So, um, just be getting on the same page, communicating, right. I think those are some of the biggest things that you can do for a struggling team to really kind of try to get on the same page. And, and uh, that was a long winded answer to the question. I'm sorry. Um, but I think that's one of the biggest things that you can do, um, as a coach is just try to get everybody on the same page and really get to the roots of it and have open, honest communication. I actually just wrote that down literally right before you said it. That was my, I know a lot of my teammates biggest takeaway from what you brought to us was the meeting away from the meeting. And we had never really thought that what you say, you know, at dinner with your roommates and all that can really come with you to the rink. And it was definitely something that was going on. And it's, you brought it up, you know, if you have a problem with a guy, you say it to his face and that way it gets worked out. You don't have these meetings away from the meeting because now just because I don't like someone, now my roommates feel like they have to pick my side because, you know, we live together or whatever it is. Um, that was definitely a huge piece of advice that I think a lot of people weren't even aware of, I know, on my team. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? I mean, I think just a lot of what we think about in, in sports is you win and lose at the facility. You win or lose on the field, you win or lose at the rink. But in, in reality, team building, if that's what you want to call it, and building a culture, 
it's it's a 24-7 thing that can get better or worse <laughs> minute by minute based upon the interactions that you have with each other. So I, I took a – there was a woman named Jen Baker who was at Cornell – um, and she was like a pretty much a leadership ex- expert and she came from the military and now she is the, uh, the athletic director of Johns Hopkins. And she's one of like the greatest people I've ever gotten the chance to talk to about this stuff. And she was huge with our teams at Cornell on that stuff. You know, you're a teammate 24 seven, the things that you do 24 seven affect what you do on the ice. And, and I always took that message to heart because we all, are a product of our experiences and we think about the teams that we were on that did well. We think about the teams that we were, where we were on that didn't do so well. And one of the biggest common factors, and, and again, going and studying this and talking to people like yourselves, a lot of times the successful teams are just like the closest. They get along, they party together, they, they do homework together in college, they, they eat lunch and dinner together and the teams that don't do very well are very clicky. And uh, especially in college, you're already built in clicks. You got the freshmen, the sophomores, the juniors, and the seniors. So you got to get over that, number one. And then uh, the, the, the college teams especially, but even the professional teams and even the youth teams are very clicky that don't do very well. Talk about being away from the rink and being at the rink. I think that culture too is, and you just briefly said it, but culture has to be an everyday, all the time thing. I think it's how you go about doing your schoolwork and how you interact with the community and how you interact with your teammates, and then it flows into the weight room and how you practice. And one thing that I think is, I believe that a lot of people think culture is built by the coaches and that's a standard that they hold, which to some degree is very true. But in my personal opinion, I think a lot of the culture falls on on the players. Because as you just said, the coaches aren't in the locker room all the time before practice getting ready uh, to go on the ice. They have their own little isolated area. They're doing their own thing they're up in their office or you know they're not with you when you're back on campus so the things that you talk about start to manifest themselves and as Sean just mentioned if I say something that's probably negative about the coaches or a player and Sean's my good teammate he's like wow that kind of makes sense and then he starts to think about it and it manifests throughout the whole entire team and especially if it's in a negative light it's going to turn the whole entire culture negative and upside down and I think that's something that's very overlooked yeah for sure I'll tell you from just kind of based off my experiences as a player and a coach, uh, again, one of those commonalities of, of the, the better teams and the, the great teams that I was fortunate to play for and to coach, we didn't have to coach very much. And the coaches didn't have to coach very much. It was very player driven, great leadership, great captains, you know, guys that, that can hold people accountable in their own way. Um, whether it was putting an arm around somebody or whether it was, you know, getting up somebody's ass, Hey, you need to be better in these areas, whether it was at the rink or away from the rink. And, uh, you you just, that, that, that I think is a huge commonality. And you talk to coaches, great leaders make our jobs so much easier. They make our jobs so much easier because issues aren't getting to us. Issues are solved within the room. And I think we can all agree and everybody would agree that, when there's more accountability coming from within the room and within the players, that's, that's way more powerful than a coach having to hold people accountable to the standards that, that you've set. And that's why I think as coaches, and, and when I talk to coaches, this is something I talk about a lot, I think a big part of our job as coaches is leadership development. We have to develop leaders because you can't just snap your fingers and expect a guy to be a great leader. 
Um, and, and in the college setting, it's something that I think you should start from freshman year and doing things, doing team building activities, you know, bringing guys in, getting to know them, getting to know what makes them tick, learning about them as leaders before they get there. So you can put them on a path that when they're a junior or senior, those are the guys that can take the torch and really do the, the leading of, of the team. And I just, I mean, I'll ask the question to you guys, how important do you guys think leadership is from your experiences in, uh, in, in your hockey careers of your teams? I think it's everything. Just looking back, you know, isolating my college career so far, the best captain we had by far was my freshman year. Uh, his name was Rob Mann. And uh, they only, we only had a senior class of four guys. And our freshman class was like 11, I think. And that was the best that we performed all year. We lost the conference finals two to one, and we gave up a school record 13 shots against. And then we had much more skilled teams the next years, but, you know, our leadership wasn't focused on the right things. You know, they were a little more focused on, hey, like, where are we getting together after the games? Hey, how are we spending our off weekends, you know? And I think that they really wanted us to, like, bond that way away from the rink but I don't think that it was handled the right way. Whereas I know knowing now our uh, Rob man, my freshman year captain, he was named captain uh, right before the summer going into his senior year. And he spent that summer reading leadership books and like talking to people who had been captains of successful teams and putting in that extra effort definitely went very far. And he's someone that I'll still text today. If I'm having issues, uh, he's not even in the game anymore. I think he, just retired but he's still someone that had such an impact on me as a underclassman that like he's still my go-to guy he's my number one leader yeah leadership for me is like sean said is everything i think it makes or break teams and i think that that's not only leadership within uh, a team as far as captains but the leadership of the coaches uh in my opinion i think it trickles down and you know the coaches set the standard and then to be honest the captains are kind of the everyday guys that are around that make sure that that standard is being met. Um, and I think we all have been on teams with good leaders and bad leaders. Um, and I think we can take positives away from both scenarios, but if that, you know, if those captains aren't on the same page as the coaches and they're saying things a little bit differently, that's when the team just gets farther and farther apart from the common goal um, that the coaches have set out for the team. And as I mentioned, I think it starts from the coaches. I think that they have to set the accountability um, so that everyone knows the standard of what it is. And then I think it's easier for the players to be like, this is the standard the coaches have set, and this is what we're going to continue to do. Or if they don't really set anything um, as far as accountability is concerned, then it just falls to the, the wayside and people just don't, you know, they can just do whatever they want without having to face the consequences. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think, uh, again, that communication between the leaders and between the coaches, that open, honest communication, because I think that's a mark of a really good leader, too, is being able to go into the coach's office and say, hey, these are the, you guys need to do this or you need to change, you know, like giving your honest opinion. We always appreciate that as coaches, because I think most players are afraid to do that. Most players are afraid to knock on the coach's door and say, and, and not even just from a team standpoint, but from an individual standpoint too. Um, Cause I, I think there's a real big correlation of confidence and, on the ice and confidence of having the ability to walk in the coach's room and, and voice an issue. I think those two are very, very related. Um, so I, I, I think the players that are, 
you know, they have the confidence that, to, to be able to go into the coach and advocate for themselves or advocate for the team and say, hey, here are some of the issues, guys. Like some of the best conversations that I've ever had as a coach is when the players come in and challenge us and say, hey, we don't, we don't agree or, you know, this is going on and, you know, let's have a conversation. For us, that's, that's gold. Because again, we're not around you guys 24 seven. We don't see everything. We see what we see at the rink. We see what we see in our one-on-one conversations. And again, sometimes players are guarded in those conversations. So they're not giving you, you know, the full, you know, the full Megilla of what's going on. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, that, that communication back and forth between the leaders and between the coaches, it, it makes coaches job very, very, very much easier. If that's, I don't even know if that's a weird way to say it, but <laughs> makes our job easier. <laughs> So you talked about having a hard time knocking on a coach's door and my first junior hockey coach, I think you're familiar with, uh, I played in Lone Star for Dan Wildfong. I was looking at your hockey career and you played some games for the Texas Brahmas. I think it was only his second year of coaching. Uh, did you play for Dan? I did. I played for him for maybe like two months or something like that. And then, then he traded me. So uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, to Rio Grande Valley, right? Yeah. Yeah. You talk about adversity, what your guys' podcast is about, you know, that was, that was probably one of the hardest times in my hockey career. Cause you know, you go, I was at Cornell, uh, had, had a successful career at Cornell, um, was a captain actually was fortunate, scored a hundred points. So, you know, it was like really, really proud of, of my career there and, and, and stuff. And, and then being a smaller player, I'm only five foot four. So, you know, pro hockey, um, I was expecting, you know, having the career that I had to, you know, not necessarily get an NHL contract by any means, but no AHL teams called, not even for a camp. And I'm like, what is going on here? And then I ended up in the coast and two weeks into preseason, uh, I got cut. <laughs> so I go from scoring a hundred points in college and captain and all this kind of stuff world at my fingertips to, you know, a couple months later having all these big dreams and aspirations where it was, uh, you know, not getting an AHL even call, forget about a contract, uh, going to the coast and, and getting cut two weeks in when all the AHL guys started coming down. Cause I was just on a one-way coast deal. And, uh, so went down to the central league, played for Fonger for a couple months and then he traded me. <laughs> so it's just like, what is going on right now? Um, but you know what it is, it is what it is. It's, uh, it's all a part of the learning experience. And at the time you don't really realize that it's a, it's every experience is a good experience based upon how you look at it and you learn from them and you grow and you get better. Um, sometimes you don't learn that till years later. Um, if you can learn it when you're in the spot, that's great. But very few people I think have the ability to do that. So, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting playing for Fonger. That's for sure. Well, Rio Grande must've been pretty interesting too. They had a junior team back when I was playing and guys would literally walk to the border of, uh, Mexico and the United States before the game. Cause it was like a mile away from the rink, maybe. Is that a pretty unique experience? Yeah, it's about three miles. So we're okay. we're three miles from the border, and you know, with everything that's going on, you know, in the world right now and in our country, you know, you can turn on the TV, and with all the immigration stuff, it's always in the town that we live in in McAllen, <laughs> with all this stuff going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely different. I mean, yeah, it's seventy degrees all year, which is kind of nice. Uh, not used to that, especially playing in upstate New York for the four years before that, where, uh, you know, 70 degrees was, you were, you were happy with 70 degrees at, at any point. 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's all a part of the journey and playing in the central hockey league. Again, that's another thing that was really interesting from a learning experience is because, you know, there were guys playing in the central hockey league that should not have been in the central hockey league. You know, those guys should have been playing in the AHL without question. They had the talent to be able to do it, but they didn't necessarily have that, that resiliency and, and that ownership of their own, you know, careers and, attitude might not have been there and 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 so you know you saw some players and again it all goes back to I've always been really interested in what makes teams and what makes players great and being in the central league and and being away from college where everybody's pretty much pushed everybody's pretty much driven it's very structured to go to pro hockey where there's zero structure basically and everybody's on their own page um, and worried about their own careers you, you you really get a sense of the guys that let's call it underachieved and, and the guys that really overachieved and, and a big part of that is just personal habits and personal mindset, not necessarily talent level. Going back to an earlier stage of your career, junior hockey is a different animal from what any other athlete goes through on their journey to college. You said that your transition, your first year was difficult. Can you explain the situation and how you overcame it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my, the first year of junior hockey was the hardest year of hockey I've ever had in my life. Uh, I, I came in as a 15-year-old, actually. And so I was, I was young, um, going into the USHL, playing in Chicago. And, uh, you know, when you're playing against 20-year-olds, and not even necessarily they are so much physically bigger and stronger and more experienced than you are. And you guys know from playing junior hockey experiences, it's a really good thing to have. <laughs> I felt like every year of junior, I got better just based upon what you know about the lifestyle and the, the play and how to navigate all of that stuff. And so it was a really, really hard year. Um, I had always been extremely passionate about the game, uh, always loved the game. And that was the only year of my, my life where that came into question. I wasn't enjoying coming to the rink. Um, I wasn't enjoying being around my teammates. Like it was a very, very tough thing to to go through, especially as a 15 year old. Um, but I'm, I'm very lucky and very, very fortunate that I have a fantastic family and fantastic group of friends that did not let me feel sorry for myself and came at it from a, Hey, this is going to make you stronger kind of perspective. And what you're going to learn this year is going to help you to become an even better player you know, years down the road. And even though I, I heard it at the time, I didn't really necessarily understand it or wrap my head around what they were talking about. But, you know, when you get through that tough time and things start to kind of turn your way because you're working at it and you're trying to stay positive and then you finally see yourself getting some success, then you start to recognize that, okay, that, that actually was uh, just a part of the journey and a necessary part of the journey to, uh, to, to get better and to grow. I think that's probably the number one thing that you can tell players, but it's just so hard for them to understand. Uh, yesterday, I helped uh, my former AAA coach have a meeting with a player who was concerned that other players in the state were already getting junior looks and college commitments. And <laughs> when I was in his shoes, the same coach sat me down and you know talked to me about not comparing yourself to others and just trying to be better than yourself every day because that's all you can control. And it was just a crazy, you know, role reversal for me yesterday because I was the guy who was like, listen, like I did it eight years ago. I was in your exact same shoes. I was worried about all the players that were getting looks that I thought I worked harder than. And you literally, you just have to stick to your journey. And like you said, once it goes your way, 
you get that hindsight and you see, okay, what I was doing is paying off. But I think it's so hard for players in the moment to understand that they are in the right spot and they have to keep doing what they're doing. Yeah. And, and one of the things that you talked about there, like I, I tell you guys in the team building stuff, like I, I am so lucky that I'm not a kid today. And I grew up in the era that I grew in pre social media, pre ranking websites, pre all the stuff that the kids have to deal with today. Because for, for me, one of my weaknesses as a person is I'm, I'm sensitive to what other people think about me. It's, it's something that I think about and, uh, and that's all these kids have. It's that comparative culture, you know, like uh, they look on social media and, and they see all these other players that they think they're better than getting these junior tryouts or college commitments or whatever. And it can really damper your spirit as a, as a kid kind of thinking you deserve one thing based upon the work that you've put in and what you're doing and how you're executing. And then those things not necessarily happening to you. And it's, it's something I'm very mindful of in, in speaking to literally every youth team and youth player that I speak to. This is one of the most important things that I talk about is don't compare yourself to others because you're right. Everybody has their own journey and some people's journeys just take longer than others. They'll end up in the same spot. And, and I almost think a lot of times it's, um, it's, it's a detriment. I don't want to say a detriment. That's probably not the right word, but if you peak early, like if you're an early mature and you have a lot of success and people are telling you how good you are at a young age. So 13, 14, 15 years old, I, I think that's a hindrance to your development, honestly, because the more people tell you how good you are, the more you believe them and the more complacent that you can get. And I think a lot of the players that end up achieving really good things later on, you know, junior hockey, college hockey, professional hockey, they're ones that weren't necessarily the people that got told how good they were at such a young age. And, and again, there's, there's spectrums to that, right? Some people don't get complacent and they are the best at 12, 13, 14 and grow earlier and hit puberty at that age. And then they continue that because they've had great support systems and people that have pushed them and, and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, in talking to a lot of hockey people and talking to a lot of, you know, scouts in the NHL, they like to scout um, and recruit players that have a little sandpaper to them that have a little adversity to them that have had to figure that kind of stuff out because that's such an essential skill as you guys know as you get to the higher levels where it is there is a lot more pressure and there is more pressure to win and perform especially if you aspire to get to the next level I think developing that sandpaper mentality too can only be you know learned through experience you can't really teach that it's just something you have to go through and kind of figure out for yourself. And as Sean just mentioned, he sat down with that 15-year-old kid. I wish that we could go back to 15, 16-year-old Sean because I remember, you know, one of the biggest things our coach used to say is the process. And I remember Sean was pretty much like, man, screw the process. Like, the, I hate hearing that. The process sucks. And now you talk to him. He's older, more mature. He's been through it, through experience. And now all we talk about is the process and enjoying the process and not being so focused on the end goal, but just enjoying today and uh, for what it is and what we have right now. So it's cool as, you know, someone that's a friend of Sean to see his development throughout the years. Um, and it's fun, fun to be a part of and see what he's been able to accomplish. It's just so hard, especially as a kid, because you want something so badly, right? And you think that you're, you've done everything, right? But you don't, you don't realize how far you are from that journey. Like the 16-year-old the kid I was talking to, I was like, man, you still have two, maybe three years of AAA. 
two, maybe three years of junior hockey, four years of college hockey. This, this path is just beginning. And it's, you, I don't think there's anything you can really say to like have that click in their mind because at no point did he smile. Like he was not happy with the answer that like, you need to stick to the process. There's so much time you're doing just fine. Like I, like you said, that didn't really make me happy at the time. Either. <laughs> <laughs> one of the best, one of the best pieces of advice I got, and I honestly don't even remember who it was. It was probably my parents was nothing, nothing greater of value ever came without time. Like things take time. And, and development takes time and uh, and all you have is today, you know, and then that's a tough thing for all of us, whether you're an adult or whether you're a kid uh, is it, it just takes time and we get so worried about the future and we get so worried about, um, you know, what, what we want as the end goal that we forget that today is, is what gets us to that end goal. And you talk about the 1% better. And, and that's, thing that, that's one of the things that's tough as a coach, too. I think the best coaches, they, they find a way. And terminology is always really important as a coach. Like the words that you use, the vocabulary, and the process. I mean, it's almost like a buzzword now. Everybody talks about the process. And when you talk about the process, kids will tune you out. Because it's like, okay, I've heard about the process. I get it. You know? So like as a coach, how can you make the process fun? As a coach, how can you talk about the journey in a way that resonates with the players so they can learn to appreciate today and they can enjoy and, and focus on the here and now rather than the comparative culture of thinking about the future and thinking about what other people have going on away from you. Um, but everything great, it, it takes time. It just, it takes time. And the people that have the discipline to stick to it, uh, in the good days and the bad days, the days where you want to go to the gym and the days you don't want to go to the gym, the days where you're feeling well and the days that you aren't feeling well. I, I really feel like the best of the best, they have the ability to um, focus on today, but not only focus on the on today, but find a way to enjoy it, even on the days where you don't really feel like enjoying it. <laughs> so there's some struggles that you really have no control over like time, right? And another one of your struggles was being an undersized player. Elite prospects had you listed at five, six, and I think you gave yourself five, four. How did you overcome uh, a size barrier? And I'm sure back in your day, size was even a bigger, a bigger deal, right? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I always looked at it as an advantage, not a disadvantage. You get into a corner with a bigger player and using your mobility to kind of get around them and things like that. I always kind of found a way to use it as an advantage in my head and not a disadvantage. Um, but also, I, I think going back to the adversity, like I got cut a couple different times throughout my youth hockey career. Um, and in my opinion, was not warranted. And it was because of my size. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to prove to you asshole who cut me that I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to shove it. Like I am going to prove to you that you made the wrong decision. And I literally like one of the hardest things that I, I ever had to go through. Um, one of the toughest moments of my life was, you know, you go to those USA hockey festivals in, in the summer and then they always have those teams going overseas. Uh, afterwards they pick a team from that tournament to go overseas to play in the, the whatever tournament it is, the U 17 challenge. Ivan, Holinka. Ivan Holinka, I believe. Yeah. The Holinka. Um, so I remember, um, going in and at the time that I was playing in it, it was, uh, you played for your districts. So there was like the central district, which was like Illinois, Missouri, Wisconsin. We were all on one team. And then like Minnesota had a team, New York had a team, it, you know, at like every district in the U S had a team. And so, um, you know, our 
our team, we took second uh, in, in the tournament. We lost to Michigan in the championship game. And we had a lot of really good players on our team. We like Ryan Suter was on our team. Al Montoya was on our team. Jake Dowell, who played in the NHL. We had a ton of guys. Like we were really good. Paul Stastny was on our team. Um, and so uh, after the game, I, I was one of the leading scorers at the camp. And after the game, all, like a bunch of guys on my team had an envelope. And in the envelope was like an invitation to go upstairs to basically um, sign your contract to be a part of the team for Team USA to go overseas. That was always a dream of mine. It was always a dream of mine to wear the USA crest. I, I that was like, I, I thought it was so cool, you know, miracle, 1980s, and and like it was just that was a huge dream of mine. And I didn't have an envelope, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me! Like, really, you got to be kidding me! I'm one of the leading scorers here. Why do I not have an envelope? And and all these other guys on my team do. And so I'm just, I'm pissed off. I'm downtrodden. And then one of the coaches comes in and says, is Topher in here? I was like, yeah, I'm here. So he's like, I, I want to talk to you. I was like, okay. So uh, he takes me and we go upstairs and upstairs, everybody who got an envelope from my team and the other teams, they were all signing their contracts. And, and I'm kind of sitting there like, I have no idea what's going on. Why am I in here? I didn't get an envelope. What's going on? And so the coach pulls me aside. He says, Hey, um, uh, you know, I just want to let you know, we thought you played really well here. Um, you, you did everything that you could have done to, uh, to make this team, um, really liked your, your work ethic and your compete level and you put points up and all this kind of stuff. And then he goes, but you know what, we're just looking for a lot of size for this team. So, uh, we're not going to take you, but we just, we thought we wanted to let you know that, uh, that you played well and, and deserve to be on this team, but we're not taking you. I could have punched him in the face right there. I almost did. I literally almost did. And I still remember the coach's name. And every time I see him and every time we played against him in college, because he was a college coach, I wanted to shove it up his ass. And, uh, and that happened to me probably five or six times in my career. And, uh, and so using that being small and, and being looked over for what I thought at the time was, was not a very good reason. Um, uh, it just motivated me so much more to get better. And, and, and in the times that weren't very tough, I just remember those coaches. I remember those coaches that doubted me and, and didn't think I had what it took because I was small and say, you know, I don't improve to these guys um, that I can. I think that just circles back to the very beginning. We were talking about Michael Jordan and motivating yourself. And I, I can't believe that that coach honestly, like had the guts to tell you, yeah, you're not big enough to make this team. You played fantastic. You should be on it. Looking back at it now as a coach and even as a recruiter, you know, telling kids that you want them as a part of your program and then other kids, you know, we're going to pass and we're going to move on. Like I, I appreciate it a little bit more because I think what he was trying to do, he wasn't trying to put me down. He was actually trying to tell me, you know, like, Hey, I, that you played really well. You know, we just want to bring you up here to let you know that. But I didn't, I didn't take it that way at the time. I still don't really take it. That. You can hear in my voice. I'm still pissed off about it. <laughs> you know, like, um, but you, again, you just, the best point, they, they find a way to, to take their, um, we had a guy in our podcast. He's a mental coach. His name is Ricky Mendez. And he, he doesn't call them setbacks. He calls them setups. Use, these are setups that the, the tough times that you go through, they're setups for you to get something even greater. And, and so I think the best players in the world, um, and not even necessarily, but like just people who kind of overachieve, people who max out their potential, I think they really have that in their DNA and in their mindset to, to take some of those tough times and use it as motivation to get better. You talk about setbacks or setups, as you just said, going into your third year of juniors, you tore your ACL in the first game of the season. <laughs> yeah. How heartbreaking was the timing of that injury and how did it affect you, you mentally during the recovery process? Um, again, 
I think you're only as good as an individual as the people that surround you. Um, you have to have a good support network of people in your corner for you to get through tough times. I, I, I don't know that there's that many people strong enough mentally to get through whatever hardship it is. You, you need good people. And, and I'm very, very fortunate to have had that because again, it was the same thing. <laughs> like, so the USHL fall classic, the, you know, the, the, tournament at the beginning of the year before the season where all the colleges are there and, and, and all the pro scouts are there and everything. I led the tournament in scoring that year. And at the end of the tournament, you know, all the colleges are down there and I'm so excited because they were all talking to me and we want to get you in on visits and blah, 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 blah. And uh, I was on top of the world next week, literally the first game I play boom, torn ACL out for five months and all of the colleges stopped calling. Like all the cool stuff that they were saying to me about all the visits and scholarships and that, there was none, <laughs> you know? So it was, it was, it was very, very tough, but thank God I have fantastic parents. Thank God I have fantastic siblings and friends and, and even my teammates and coach who did not allow me to feel sorry for myself. They just, they wouldn't have it. And they said, Hey, use this as an opportunity. Like, what can we take out of this opportunity to, to get better? And so you work on your mental strength. You work, you miss the game too. You you miss the game so much and you watch your teammates and you go to practice and you watch them and you're sitting in the stands and you just, you know, it just reinvigorates you to, to, to want to be your best and to get back out on the ice and do something special. And so I, I'm just very, very fortunate that I had really good people that didn't let me feel sorry for myself and, and put it in my head that, Hey, let's use this as, as motivation. You know, all those colleges that aren't calling anymore, you're going to prove it to them when you get back even better than before. And you're going to go to a different school and you're going to end up playing against those, those teams. Um, and, and, uh, and I just had a great support system. So that was huge. Your mindset was obviously really important too. And I think that it's something that actually kind of helped me a little bit throughout, you know, the dog days of the season, the Monday morning practice, you really don't want to be there. You don't want to put in the effort. And then you see those guys who have been injured, you know, they have, you know, the torn labrums or whatever it is, and they're sitting out and you can just tell, like, they want nothing more than to be out there. And it's, it really has to be something that you, you don't know what you have until it's gone, but try and learn from other people too. And be like, wow, I do have this opportunity. You know, I need to put in the work, like you said, even on the days where you don't feel like it. Yeah. And what you're talking about, and I think is one of the most powerful things you can have as a person that's perspective, perspective, being able to, to get outside of yourself and, and see something from either somebody else's point of view, or just from maybe like a, a 10,000 foot point of view uh, because with us especially when you're a high level athlete you're so focused on what you're doing especially if you're goal oriented and you're structured and and there's certain things that you have to do every day to get better which most high level athletes have in their arsenal a lot of times it can be very individually focused and then when those tough times end up happening you're just all you see is yourself but at the end of the day like we are very lucky to be in the situations that we're in being a division one athlete or being a professional or junior hockey player, um, having the, the health to be able to do it, having a family that was able to support you along your journey to get you to that spot. Uh, I mean, we have so much to be grateful for. Um, and, and it's not like the resiliency and the adversity going through that stuff. It's not just about the mental will um, and about the support group. It's about being able to look at things outside of yourself and understand that we are, even though times are shitty at the time, like, 
there is this 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 uh this luck not, i don't want to say luck factor but there is this this factor of like hey i'm actually very fortunate to be in the situation that i'm in because there's a lot of other people that have not been given the gifts that i've been given to be in this situation right now as as bad as it may seem right now and I, and so i think just from a personal development standpoint i think having the opportunity to get that perspective can be so powerful in getting through some of those tough times too absolutely perspective is so huge on you know all aspects of your life like you said people who achieve great things they're always striving for perfection but it can be a double-edged sword as you put it when we spoke earlier the grind of being your best every day causes anxiety for you how do you battle that and it's not it's not a bad thing to strive for perfection right but sometimes it can be damaging to you so how do you navigate that yeah, it's tough, man. <laughs> it's tough. I th- I think a lot of a lot of high achievers, and I, maybe you guys do too. A lot of high achievers struggle with that because there is that that sense of like I have to be perfect. There is this sense that I have to work, I have to work, I have to work, and and when you do that, you lose some of that perspective because you know. Um, one of the things that I heard it in a podcast, it was progress over perfection. It's got to be progress over perfection because you're never going to be perfect. It's impossible to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. Sidney Crosby and Connor McDavid aren't perfect. You know, they make a lot of mistakes. They go through tough times. They, they battle adversity and all that kind of stuff. So um, I think trying to achieve some sort of balance is, is good in, in your life. And, and as an entrepreneur, when you're starting a company, that's, that's been probably the hardest part about it is because like, you know, as, as hockey players, there's a score and there's an end result. So you can kind of judge yourself based upon the, what you've achieved or not achieved based on just a, a tangible result. When you're building something like this with the hockey think that I've tried to, there's not really an end result that you can say, okay, I've done my job my job is done and I did it well, or I didn't do it well. Okay. Now let's, now let's reevaluate when you're building something and there's a lot of uncertainty that causes a lot of that anxiety because you work and you work and you work and you're trying to build and build and build and do all this kind of stuff, but then you're not getting the feedback. And now it's like, okay, Oh crap. I need to work harder and harder and harder. And like, maybe I need to do this differently or maybe I need to do that differently. And, And when you're trying to achieve it, and there's nothing really to achieve. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's tough, but so it's like setting goals, I think is, is one of the things that's really helped me just like daily goals. Okay. When I've done these three things, that's a good day. And we can say that I've had a good day rather than, you know, I've done these three things and I need to do 10 more things to make sure it's been a good day. Um, so setting goals, setting parameters, and then trying to achieve that kind of balance is, is, is what's helped me a little bit, but it's still a daily struggle that, uh, that I go through. One of my good friends, we were in the gym, you know, a couple summers ago and the exercise was to like hold a plank with a weight on your back as long as you can. And I was ready to go. And my buddy calls the trainer over. I'm like, you don't know what to do. It's a pretty simple exercise. He goes, no, I want to know how long to go. Like it says, as long as you can. And so he gets the trainer. He's like, how long do I do this? And the trainer says the same thing, as long as you can. He's like, well, what's, what's a good time? Like, what are other people doing? He goes, you're the only one I have this program for. I don't know. Do it as long as you can. And just mentally, he couldn't do it. He set a time for himself. And he was like, I'm going to do it this long. Like he mentally not having that score, like you talk about, that goal was so hard for him. And I definitely agree personally, and I'm sure Garrett does too, that it's hard to not like overwork yourself. It's like, if I just do 
you know, one more rep, am I going to make, make it to the NHL? Like if I just do 10 more minutes at the end of practice, am I going to do this at the other thing? And that's definitely something that gives me anxiety too, is just not having that set path. Like this is the recipe for the goals you want. That is definitely something hard. And, um, I think that your quote of progress over perfection is something that'll really help me too. I get caught up and I struggle with, especially now when you're in the season, you go through practice where if, you know, I ride the bike for 10 miles after practice or I did something before practice and I have a great day, the next day I'm like, why did all these extra things and I did all this shit before practice and I did it after practice and that's why I had a great day. And then I have to do it over again. And if I don't do it, it's kind of in my mind, like the reason that I had a great practice was because of the extra things that I did. And now that I'm not doing them, I'm like, am I going to have good practice? Like, I'm almost playing like a tug of war with myself. Like, I should do that, but I don't know. My legs don't feel good today. We got a game this weekend. I don't want to do it. And it's like mental warfare with myself. It's kind of crazy. And I think that a lot of times I'm just creating more stress and anxiety for myself that just comes out of nowhere. Like, it doesn't even make sense what I'm saying. But in my head, it's like, it's nuts. It's like in the gym, if I skip a rep and I give up a bad goal, I'm like, I gave up a bad goal because I skipped a rep today. So uh, I don't know. It's, it's gotten crazy with me, I think, but that's just the way that I am. You're not the only one, my man. There's a lot of high-level athletes that struggle with that too. It's, uh, again, like you said, Sean, it's double-edged sword, right? When you care, when you care a lot, that at times can be a detriment. <laughs> <laughs> because you want so badly to do well. You want so badly to win that sometimes it can cloud our, our judgment. It can cloud, um, you know, our, our process of what we know can, can help us to be successful, but you can't be great without it either. <laughs> so, and everybody's different. Everybody has to find that balance and it's different for everybody. So um, that's, that's one of the the cool things about, um, being really good at something is that number one, it's really hard, but number two, there's not like an exact recipe for it too. If it was easy and there was a recipe for it, everybody could do it. Um, but human nature and, and being great is such a malleable different thing for everybody that, uh, it's, it's for me, I kind of see it as a really cool social experiment <laughs> and, and you guys have got to where you've got to because of exactly what we're talking about. And, uh, and I commend you guys for, it because it's, it's not easy. And, and, uh, there's a lot of times that you have, you have, uh, you know, fist fights between the ears, between <laughs> what you, what you're trying to think about and, and you just a mental battle at times, but, uh, it, it makes you stronger in the end. And, and that's one of the nice things too, about being a high level athlete is that once you get out of being a high level athlete and you have to get a job or raise a family, I mean, all this stuff that we learn going through this process and going through the ups and downs, you can, it's, it's very translatable to, to real life afterwards too. And so the last thing we want to touch on, I uh, believe you said two years ago, you started the Hockey Think Tank podcast. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, it was just kind of on a whim. I mean, I, uh, we started this Hockey Think Tank company that was all about hockey education for coaches, players, and parents. And um, getting out of the college game and being a recruiter and getting to know so many people and then getting into the youth hockey game, parent and coach education for me was one of the biggest needs that hockey needed. Um, I just think it's, it's such a important, uh, value that that can make our game better. So, you know, did the website and then, uh, thought about doing a podcast podcast at the time weren't necessarily a thing yet. I mean, they're kind of all the rage right now. 
Um, but was like, Hey, like, you know, I, I have this opportunity from where I've been as a college coach. I've gotten to know so many awesome people in this game. Why not get some of these people on and, and just from a parent and coach education standpoint, but just talk, whatever, talk hockey or talk life. And then we'll just let it go where it may. And it just kind of took off. And my co-host Jeff Lavecchio is my cousin, uh, but he played 10 years of professional hockey. He was a college hockey player at Western Michigan. And he's gone through a lot of ups and downs in his career too. And um, he's a lot funnier than I am and brings a lot more personality to the, to the podcast. I'm kind of the guy that tries to steer the ship and he's the one that brings the entertainment value. Um, but we've been really, really fortunate um, to be able to grow this thing. And we're 130 some odd episodes in, you know, we've had uh, guests on everybody from like a Marty St. Louis or a Jaina Hefford who are, you know, Olympians and, and, um, hall of famers at, all the way down to, you know, youth hockey coaches that we think have done a great job in the youth hockey game. And we, um, uh, for me, the value of the podcast has been the, the journeys of the guests that we bring on the stories that they're able to tell because for everybody that listens to it. And even for us as the host of the podcast, we can all resonate with a lot of the stuff that people go through the ups and the downs and a lot of the stuff that we talked about here today is a lot of the stuff that we talk about um and and when it comes from you know people like marty st louis or some of these nhl players or college coaches getting the chance to bring college coaches on to talk about what they see and and what they see in successful people and teams and players and things like that um it's been a lot of fun as we talked about before we we press record here like it's a it's one of the best parts of my day being able to talk hockey with people like yourselves and, and the people that we bring on our podcast um uh, because it does it brings back some fun memories it brings back some not so fun memories too but you you, you reflect upon how they actually made you better now 10 20 years later um but uh yeah it, it was all about just uh you know, just putting some educational content about the greatest game that we have, in my opinion, and probably your opinion too. Um, and it's been a lot of fun. We can't thank you enough for coming on. And like you said, those bad times gave you a lot of perspective that I think a lot of people still don't have, no matter how old they are. So I knew that you would be a fantastic guest to have on from our experience uh, with my Robert Morris team a couple years ago. And I think anyone who listens to this, there's a, a ton of information. I have a lot of a lot of quotes and a lot of topics written down here that we covered. So thank you so much. <laughs> I always I always say we I judge my podcast and how well it went based upon the amount of notes that I took. So hopefully, <laughs> yeah, hopefully we're able to do that here today. <laughs> yeah, I got a nice log list. Good stuff. Well, thanks for having me, guys. This was a lot of fun. Great to see you again. And uh best of luck with this stuff. If you guys need any help, let me know. And uh best of luck on your guys' journeys. You're doing a great thing here. Yeah, Thanks. thank you. We appreciate it a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Adversity University. You can follow more news about Adversity University on our social media pages. Our Instagram handle is adversity underscore university. Our Twitter handle is adversity underscore UNIV. And our Facebook page is Adversity University. If you know of any high-level athlete or professional that has an interesting story of overcoming adversity and you think they should share it, you can email us at adversityuniversitytalkshow at gmail.com. You can also use that email if you are interested in becoming a sponsor for Adversity University. We look forward to bringing our listeners more content from interesting guests weekly, so stay tuned on social media to see who could be next and what our past guests are up to now.